Good evening, hushlings, and welcome. I present your preceptors to the underbelly of the void, the whispers of conjecture, and the known of the unknown. Thus begins the conclave of the Hush Hush Society. You may not have lived in Idaho 25 years ago, but ask anybody who did, and they will tell you the story of Ruby Ridge, an 11-day siege on a remote hilltop near Bonners Ferry. The whole case started a year prior to that, when Weaver refused to appear in court. That's why the Marshal Service got involved. Michael Johnson was a U.S. Marshal at the time, the law enforcement agency responsible for bringing Randy Weaver in. You see, Weaver was wanted on a federal firearm charge. He sold two sawed-off shotguns to a federal informant who was looking for information about the Aryan nation based nearby in Idaho's panhandle. Weaver refused to show up in court. You cannot tell the government, whether it's city, county, or state, uh, I'm not going to come to court. If you let that go, then you have anarchy. U.S. Marshal agents made a series of attempts to have Weaver surrender, but Weaver refused to leave his cabin. That's when things escalated with more federal agents and hundreds of Weaver supporters converging on Ruby Ridge. Greetings, Hushtillians. Welcome back to the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. Where we journey into the world of conspiratorial mysteries and dark truths. I'm Declassified Dave. And I'm Mystery Mike, and as always, we're joined by our government dissident, Slick Frank Sanders. Slickety friggity, slickety friggity, slickety friggity, slick Frank Sanders. What is going on? Dude, I'm all sorts of jazz. I'm not real fond of the government, so I mean, I'm all here for this. I am all here for this. I mean, not all of it, not all the little bits and you know, the tiny little details, but here for it, man. How you guys doing? Not here for all the bullets. Ah, not here for the, you know, white supremacism. No. Ah, boys, we're getting close. Getting close to the end of this season. We are. The things end of are, all of it. Things are brewing. Oh, yeah, the end of the show. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Joke's on you guys. All right, thanks for joining us. <laughs> I'm pretty excited. Hit some milestones this past year. But three years, huh? Can't, yeah, man. Can't believe it. Three years and 10,000 hours later of our fucking voices. So 10,000 hours. Yeah. Yep. yep. Good God. Yeah. Uh, I'm excited to hike up that little iceberg we've got planned. I'm, I'm excited. Get the ice picks out. Get the ice picks. Full steam ahead into that uh, into that iceberg like the Titanic or like Ocean Gate. Oofa. You think they hit an iceberg? No. That was a U-boat. <laughs> no. I think they were crushed like a natty ice can at the end of a redneck concert. <laughs> All right, boys. Let's go uh, over another siege. What What say you? Ruby Ridge, August 1992. It was here that a riveting 11-day confrontation that erupted between Randy Weaver, a self-proclaimed white supremacist, his family, a buddy named Kevin Harris. Gotta have a buddy named Kevin and the Federal Bureau of Investigation Officers and U.S. Marshals. During this severe siege, Weaver's wife Vicki and his 14-year-old son Sammy and U.S. Marshal William Deegan were all killed around an isolated cabin in Boundary County, Idaho. Today we look at the events leading up to the standoff and what followed afterwards. But before we pop shots off at government agents... Just want to remind you of our social medias, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, which is now changing to X because Elon Musk needs everything to be X-rated. Did you guys hear about that one? 
No more bird. No what are you bird. talking about? It's, go, it's going. It's going by the wayside. Elon <laughs> Musk announced today, as of uh, this recording, that uh, he's changing Twitter. It's not going to be Twitter anymore. It's going to be X. And that stands for what? Who the fuck knows? Can we call it ten? Yeah, it's probably ten. So find us over on ten. <laughs> and as always, we appreciate your reviews. Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, Podchaser. Do the damn thing. If you guys want to check out everything Hush Hush Society, visit hushhushsociety.com. It's our official website. You can find all our episodes like this one, our blog, our merchandise, our links to all our social medias that Mike mentioned above, and the direct link to our Rockfin for the video portion that you are staring at now. Yeah, that's right. The Rockfin, man. It's it's popping off. It's popping off. You can come see us in video. And there's several reasons why you should do that, right? So obviously you, the listener, already listen to podcasts, but there are benefits to coming over to the Rockfin. For example, you're going to get some immersive sensory delights when, when you come over. You're going to get to see us while listening to us. You're going to get visual cues as to what we're talking about. I don't know how Teslas work, but you might be able to put that on on your little Tesla screen, on your way to work. Like it, it could be awesome for you. You should really check it out. I'm putting a lot of work in for the Rockfin. You guys should really stop over. Hands free hush hush society. You could probably put it in your VR goggles. Oh, feel like you're recording with us. <laughs> Are we supposed to get more cameras so they can get like this weird 360 V? <laughs> yeah. All right, boys, let's jump right into this one. For sure, for sure. Well, for starters, we've got Mr. Randy Weaver. He is sort of the uh, central encompassing pivot point of this subject. And Randy Weaver was a former Iowa factory worker and U.S. Army veteran. He made an important decision in the 1980s. He and his wife, Vicki, as well as their four children, relocated to northern Idaho with the goal in mind to homeschool their children and escape from what they thought to be a corrupt world. Vicky supposedly had been having dreams about living on a mountaintop and believed the apocalypse was coming. This led the Weavers to embark on a path of simplicity and giving up possessions. Yet another group of people that believed that the apocalypse was coming. And her dreams were pretty specific saying that they were supposed to live on a mountainside, which is exactly what drew them to get the property in the first place. Interesting lady. It might be exaggerated, but like that's not too far off the beaten path of reasonable thinking. Yeah. Like we should live in the woods on a mountainside and get away from the corrupt society, but the apocalyptic dreams. Yeah. I guess if that's your motive, then there's something wrong, I guess. Was there drugs involved in all of this at all? <laughs> no. Oh, no. Oh. Surprisingly not. Okay. Well, that changes everything. Yeah. In 1983, the Weavers acquired a 20-acre piece of land on Ruby Ridge in Boundary County, Idaho, where they began constructing their cabin. The property, which was situated on a hillside along Ruby Creek, provided a serene and secluded setting northwest of the nearby town of Naples. However, their peaceful existence was disrupted when Randy Weaver and his neighbor, Terry Kinnison, disagreed over a $3,000 property deal. 
Kinnison lost the lawsuit and had to pay Weaver an additional $2,100 in court costs and damages as a result of the legal conflict. Kinnison responded to the conflict by writing letters to various agencies, including the FBI, the Secret Service, and the county sheriff, claiming that Weaver had threatened the lives of Pope John Paul II and President Ronald Reagan. Well, if those two characters had a baby, it would be the embodiment of Satan. Uh, (laughs) Ronald Reagan, his alter ego is the devil, and any pope in my eyes has the seed of Satan already inside of it. If that's how you want to get back at your neighbors, just call law enforcement and say that they made a bunch of threats. That's like the people that are on the road and somebody cuts you off and you're like, yeah, okay. Then they give you the finger and you're like, oh, sounds good. And then you jump on the phone with state police and you go, this guy just flashed a gun at me. Here's his license plate. If you've never done that, give it a try. People do that? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Following claims that Randy Weaver had made these threats, the FBI, as well as the Secret Service, launched an investigation in January of 1985. Weaver and his wife met with two FBI agents, two Secret Service agents, the Boundary County Sheriff, and the lead investigator on February 12th. And a partridge and a pear tree. <laughs> During the inquiry, the Secret Service obtained evidence suggesting that Weaver was a member of Aryan Nations, a renowned white supremacist terrorist organization that supports anti-Semitic and neo-Nazi ideology. There were also allegations about a large collection of weapons at Weaver's house. However, when questioned, Weaver strongly denied these allegations. With no further evidence, no charges were filed. Of course, you gotta say, I didn't do that shit. What are you talking about? I don't have weapons. I like how they just took his word for it, though. They're like, oh, okay. Can you imagine, like, having that horde of weaponry and they're just like, all right, thanks for your time. There, I mean, to be clear, there was never any evidence either before the siege, during the siege, or after the siege that he actually had a cache of weapons. He just had a couple rifles. Well, beyond all of that, Idaho is a relatively loose gun law state. The NRA would even go as far to consider it gun-friendly. So even if he did have a massive stockpile of guns on his little cliffside cabin, so what? Weaver and his family went to events at Hayden Lake, where the Aryan Nation's members, along with other separatists and supremacist groups, gathered on numerous occasions. The investigation focused on Weaver's relationship with Freight Kumnik, who had ties to the Aryan Nations. Weaver stressed that neither he nor Kumnik were Aryan Nations members, but he admitted Kumnik's involvement with the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord. So that's another alt-right, far-right group. They consider themselves a survivalist group uh, as opposed to white supremacist group or an anti-Semitic group. Now, there is an interesting connection here that maybe we'll get into once we breach into the Oklahoma City bombings, but Timothy McVeigh was also loosely connected to the CSA, as they were called, the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord. As we will find out at one point, Timothy McVeigh goes on to say that Ruby Ridge and Waco were two of the reasons that he performed the bombing. 
Well, following that, Randy and Vicki Weaver filed an affidavit with the county courts on February 28th, stating their worry that people with a vendetta against them were scheming to encourage the FBI to target and perhaps even destroy their family. The Weavers then wrote to President Reagan on May 6th, indicating that their enemies had sent him a threatening letter with a forged signature. However, no tangible evidence of such a letter has ever been discovered. Despite this, the prosecutor highlighted the 1985 letter as an alleged overact in the Weaver's family's claimed plot against the federal government in 1992. You'll see later down the line that this is kind of a, a snowballing effect as the Weavers have gotten onto the radar of law enforcement, especially with the FBI and ATF. Uh, is that they're finding all these little things about the Weavers and just kind of like tallying them up. They say that it's part of a threat assessment or a threat profile that they had against the family, especially Randy Weaver. The ATF learned of Randy Weaver's involvement in July of 1986 via a confidential source at the World Aryan Congress. Now, it's funny. <laughs> Randy stated that he had no connection to white supremacist groups, but he keeps hanging out with white supremacists. Just saying, just saying. The informant, posing as a gun dealer with ties to motorcycle gangs, invited Weaver to the gathering, which was originally intended for Frank Kumnick as part of the ATF investigation. So originally they're going after Frank, not Randy. Weaver attended this gathering for the first time and ran into the informant several times over the next three years. Weaver invited the informant to his house in July of 1989 to discuss the development of a group aimed at attacking the U.S. government, which he referred to as the, quote, Zionist organized government. So Randy's in it deep. But he's not. <laughs> but he is. What a swindler that Randy was. Sheesh. I'm not in it. But these are the only neighbors I have. But, you know, <laughs> I have some friends. I got slim pickings out here in Idaho. You know, I'm not a criminal, but all my friends are drug dealers. <laughs> okay, I put on the armband once in a while so that I get a free dinner with my wife. So what? They have amazing game dinners. I'm not going to pass on that. If I have to say Jews are bad to get a free venison steak, then it's happening. Golly gee willikers, I'm doing it. <laughs> Fucking pheasant and chickpeas. <laughs> Enjoy. It's like uh, the Aryans Bohemian Grove or something like that, right? It's, it's... They're eating pheasant and they take off their little Nazi armband and wipe their mouth with it and then they put it back on. That's what it's for. It's built in, man. Now, things took an interesting turn in October 1989 when the ATF claimed that Weaver had sold the informant two sawed-off shotguns. Weaver, in November of the same year, accused the informant of being a police spy. <laughs> he was. <laughs> and claimed to have been tipped off by someone called Rico V. As a result, the informant's handler, Herb Byerly, instructed him to sever all contact with Weaver. Interestingly enough, the truth came to light when another informant named Rico Valentino, Rico V, working for the FBI, revealed the identity of the ATF agent to the Aryan nations. 
little side note on this sawed-off shotgun charge. Many people will say, and of course Randy later would even say, that during this exchange with the informant, that they brought him shotguns and he sawed them down. And then they weren't short enough. They told him to saw more off because there's a certain length that you get to, obviously. That's fucked up. You can cut off some of the barrel, but once you reach a certain length in length of shotgun, then it's a federal charge. The story goes that he was brought these two shotguns. They were regular shotguns at first. He took out a saw, cuts the barrel of the shotgun. Then the informant goes to him and says, they're not short enough. And then Randy goes, okay. And he cuts more off. And then that becomes the federal charge. Arian or not, that's entrapment. I don't totally want to defend the guy because like he obviously had some twisted, you know, social aspects to him and some iffy friends but that's entrapment that's fucked up don't crucify me for saying this if you put aside the white supremacist part of this randy weaver for the most part is not the worst human being we just got canceled for all intent and purpose He was keeping to himself with his family in his own land on his cabin. Like he was just doing his own thing. And as they start to build, like I said, this threat profile, they start to like get these little things and build them up and make them bigger than they were or fabricate them and build a case against him. Fucked up either way. In June of 1990, Byerly tried using the sawed-off shotgun charges leverage to persuade Weaver to become an informant for their investigation into Aryan nations. Weaver did not agree, and the ATF slapped him with gun charges in June of 1990. They even alleged that Weaver had a criminal record as a bank robber, which later turned out to be false. Nevertheless, a federal grand jury indicted Weaver in December of 1990 on charges of making and possessing illegal weapons in October of 1989. Still, that's entrapment. That's Don't like it. I'm not a fan. Yeah, I think they saw Weaver as a means to an end, realistically, because it wasn't that he was a dangerous person or that he was a well-known criminal or anything like that. It was that he knew dangerous people and he was surrounded by criminals so they wanted to use him to get to the higher-ups to get to these criminal networks and white supremacist groups because once they got him now there's a big case open and they can get the ball rolling on other things now uh hushlings if you don't know what entrapment is definition noun the action of tricking someone into committing a crime in order to secure their prosecution. Just take a little bit more off for me, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Not short what, enough. <laughs> what's your name? Rico. Rico, take some more. You know it's bad when he pulls out the tape measure. And he's like, ah, oh, you know, <laughs> a little more off the top. Now, law enforcement saw apprehending Randy and arresting him as kind of a dangerous thing. So they did something very interesting. ATF agents posing as stranded motorists apprehended Randy Weaver and his wife, Vicky, after they stopped to provide a helping hand in January of 1991. So they stopped to help these poor people and were arrested for it. Very nice. <laughs> Entrapment and kidnapping. Good. Yeah. 
Bastards. Weaver was immediately informed of his charges, and he was later released on bond, with his trial set to begin on February 19th of 1991. The judge presiding over the case selected attorney Everett Hoffmeister to represent him legally. Hushlings, keep an eye or keep an ear on these dates because the dates are important as we move forward. February 19th was the original date of his court date. So Weaver contacted his probation officer, Carl Richens, on January 22nd. However, Richens had not yet gotten the case file and had asked Weaver to leave his contact information. Despite Hoffmeister's efforts to contact Weaver via letters and phone calls, communication was difficult to make, and Weaver did not respond. Uh, Of course, he was in the woods. Are you going to send him a carrier pigeon? A fucking smoke signal? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The matter became more complicated when the trial date was pushed back from February 19th to February 20th due to a government holiday. Unfortunately, the notice concerning the date change was never delivered to Weaver. As a result, Rickon sent Weaver a letter incorrectly claiming that his trial was scheduled for March 20th. Meanwhile, Hoffmeister made additional attempts to contact Weaver, but these were useless. Didn't get a hold of the guy. His court date was for February 19th. Then the court moved it to February 20th. Then his probation officer told him that it was March 20th. Even if communication was really great and Weaver was getting all these letters and messages from these people, they were all giving him the wrong dates. That's a trend that just picks up. The the deeper you get into this subject, the whole escalation of Ruby Ridge, poor communication is mm-hmm. just this huge just cancer on the situation that made it so much worse than it really had to be. Like throughout uh, all the way from the start. Yeah. Bad communication and just poor choices on both ends of this. Of course, Weaver was not in court on February 20th. As a result, Judge Harold Lyman Ryan issued a bench warrant for his failure to appear. Despite efforts by the United States Probation Office to fix the incorrect date and notify the appropriate parties, the bench warrant remained in effect. So essentially they said, yeah, we messed up, but the judge said, nah, we're still going to have a warrant out for him. What a mess. I'd be pissed if I was this guy too. Also keep in mind, and this plays a part in this further, that he didn't know about all this. He didn't know about the date changes. He didn't know about the warrant. He didn't know about any of this. No, because those little Aryan kids were shooting the carrier pigeons out of the sky (laughs) with their pellet guns. I don't think these guys were getting mail either. Probably not. If you're in the middle of nowhere and you want to detach from society. What are you getting mail for? Now, the U.S. Marshal Service decided it would not execute the order until after March 20th to see if Weaver would show up for the intended new court date. Yet, instead of allowing him the chance to clarify the situation, the U.S. Attorney's Office convened a grand jury on March 14th and obtained an indictment against Weaver for failure to appear. They did not reveal the confusion that arose due to Richens' letter. See, what the fuck? These guys, these guys, it's typical government. Typical. Just yeah. oops, 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 oops. As the U.S. Marshals came to be involved, they were unaware of the previous attempt to turn Weaver into an informant. 
This made them treat the situation as if Weaver was a full-blown fugitive. For Randy, a man with extreme distrust of the government and living off the grid already, this was a series of events that only made surrendering to law enforcement a last resort. At one point, the U.S. attorney ordered agents of the USMS to stand down on negotiations of surrender. Sadly, this order was not adhered to. And, of course, it wasn't. On March 27th of 1992, USMS started, quote, Operation Northern Exposure, a surveillance op on the Weaver family and their property. They observed the Weavers and their dog reacting and setting up defensive positions around the property anytime a vehicle or person approached. So they were on the ready and obviously armed. As law enforcement created threat profiles of the Weavers, the nail in the coffin to move forward with a raid would come in April of 1992. On April 18th, a helicopter hired by Geraldo Rivera's production team had flown overhead. The media would report that Randy had fired shots at the helicopter. Surveillance teams in the area had heard the helicopter, but no shots were ever reported. Furthermore, the pilot of the helicopter stated no shots were taken at the aircraft. Even during the indictment of Weaver, the prosecutor had no evidence of any shots that were taken towards the helicopter. Even the pilot said it wasn't. Like, come on. Mm -hmm. Sheesh. Despite the evidence, the U.S. attorney used this as an opportunity to draw up the rules of engagement regarding the Weaver property and the forthcoming raid. The ROE would become a major point of contention following the events at Ruby Ridge and draw massive criticisms towards law enforcement. They were just not good with Austin. They were just not good with raid situations in the early yeah. 90s, man. Like, yeah. they... Well, this was the kickoff of the poor raid situations, yeah. realistically. Mm -hmm. I think it was while Randy's trial was ongoing that Waco happened. This was just like the intro scene to Waco. And ever since, this has been the worst example of how to go about a situation like this. You want an interesting little tidbit? Yeah. Here's a little interesting tidbit. Give me, give me the bacon bits. So Waco, Ruby Ridge, the same exact law enforcement agencies were involved, ATF and FBI, and the leadership of both the ATF and FBI were on both raids. Literally the same people. Incredible. And now just think about current times. How many people are off the grid right now? Do they have all these profiles on all these people? Because, I mean, realistically, if you want to buy, like, a first aid kit, a sleeping bag, a machete, and a rifle, and you're like, I'm going to go hunting, you're already like one step in the direction of being somebody on a list because you're a prepper. If you're somebody who's prepping for the apocalypse and you're not in some biblical apocalyptic fog that your whole family's living in, you're still on that list because you're making yourself self-reliant, not having to rely on the government because that's what they want. Yeah. And also keep in mind, it's a lot easier for you to be put on a list now with the invention of the internet and mm -hmm. everyone's digital footprint. Back then, in the 90s, the 80s, whenever they had these militant groups or these white supremacist groups, they literally had to physically see these people and know who these people were, which is why I think the gathering of these types of groups was more, more frequent 
as we said, with like Aryan nations and them getting together with these global summits of really white racist people. <laughs> so it was, it was a little more difficult to figure out who was involved with these things. So when they're doing these threat assessments, a lot of them are very vague. And they're just like, oh, well, we saw this guy here. We figured out that his first name is Tommy, you know, and, and he may have a gun in his back pocket. And, you know, so it's it's very vague and moving forward with a lot of this information. I think that was a lot of the reason as to why these raids during this time and these arrests during these times and all these different situations that were going on were super botched and fucked up because they had no idea what the hell they were doing or who they were going after. I am really curious as to what said lists would look like nowadays, though. Because I feel like there's a lot more people that think along those lines than there were back then. Like, a lot more people that are thinking, what am I going to do when shit hits the fan? There's all those prepper websites, people buying tons of surplus of guns, ammo, food, just ready preparedness items, machetes, sleeping bags, tents, all that shit that you were talking about, first aid kits. I'm sure there's a whole separate list for people that are involved in white supremacist groups and cults and shit like that, but still. And how do they even keep tabs on that many people? It's got to be millions. I think it boils down to threat levels. So obviously a person who goes out and buys a machete and a bunch of camping gear, they might not even be on a list. But if you're a gun owner, maybe you're put into a level one and then you, they see who you associate with. Maybe you're moved up to a level two and then they see, oh, you're anti-government. Maybe you're moved up to a level three. I think it's a tiered system realistically. And maybe they just keep track of who they see as like the highest threat level. So fucking gross. But with the invention of AI, especially or, you know, computer systems, all they have to do is just upload words. That's all they got to do is they, they tell the AI, okay, look out for these words, these keywords. And they'll go through websites, they'll go through emails, they'll go through, they'll scour the internet, they'll look at a message that you may have sent someone fucking seven years ago, and they'll just pull all these words and say, okay, this person mentions guns 75 times this past year or, or they mention something about being against the government and guns a hundred times this year so like let's keep them on a on a list yeah and on top of it you can see the activity of people too so you're like okay this person's got a bit shoot account or something like that yeah or a 4chan account stuff. and then they're on reddit all the time and i can see that their ip address is doing this and then on top of it oh shit their bank records they bought a few guns this year. They bought a, a, a tactical vest. And then all of a sudden you're tracked to the point where you could have literally just bought a tactical vest and a couple guns because you like to go shoot targets with your buddies. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden now you're on some threat level website because of your patriotic views or whatever ideology you believe on top of the things you buy. You know, it's really strange. It's creepy. And is that government common sense? oh, yeah, we should keep an eye on these people because they do pose a threat in case something does happen. These are the most likely people to do it. And then that leads back to conspiracy theories in general and conspiracy theorists. Like, are we all on a list? Are we being watched? It's like a never-ending loop. It does verify that there is a list and that you're on a list somewhere or that you're being surveilled, but are you being surveilled because you're a dangerous person?
words are dangerous. So you could just be <laughs> for content creation, people getting shadow banned for saying something that somebody doesn't want to hear in the news cycle. This situation probably wouldn't have happened the way it happened now with the, the present technology and the way that they handle things and the way that they compile information. No, they probably would just drone strike the cabin. <laughs> <laughs> or just not have done anything at all. Just left them alone. There is that gray area, though. Do you want government oversight that much to the point where you can protect your family that went on a subway and got bombed? Or do you not want the government to look into your shit? That's the gray area. Because then we're, we're all like, well, fuck that. No, I don't want them to know what I bought with my credit card last week. But then on top of it, you're like, well, the neighbor next door is actually going to shoot up a mall. It's a fine line. This guy was still a white supremacist, though. We're not sympathizing. No, not sympathizing. Uh, realistically, there are a ton of fucking people that see Randy Weaver as a hero. There are people out there that look at it and they go, oh, he did what I would have done, you know, fight back against the fucking government and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, to a certain degree. But look at the reasoning as to why he was put in that situation in the first place and who he associated with. Shitty crowd and hoodwinked at the same time. Hushlings, we will return after these brief messages. Greetings, Hushlings. Join us for our 80th debriefing and three-year anniversary. Yep, that's right. We are three years old and it's our birthday. And we're chipping off more topics from that conspiracy iceberg chart. Myself, Mystery Mike, and Declassified Dave will each have a topic to present as well as some banter about our favorite moments in our three years. Come celebrate our birthday with us. Streaming everywhere, Monday, August 14th. Welcome back to the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. Moving forward, Hushlings, with Randy Weaver. On the morning of August 21st of 1992, a team of six U.S. Marshals prepared for a day of reconnaissance and surveillance. They were fully equipped with military-grade camouflage, night vision goggles, and M16 rifles. The team split into two groups, Marshals, Art Roderick, Larry Cooper, and William Deegan conducted standard recon in the area. At the same time, David Hunt, Joseph Thomas, as well as Frank Norris took up a position on a ridge just north of the cabin to survey from afar. Roderick thought it might be a good idea to provoke Weaver's dogs as a feeler to see how they might react to a potential threat. He threw two rocks into their direction, and the dogs went ballistic, barking up a storm, as dogs do. Weaver's buddy Kevin Harris, as well as 14-year-old Samuel, or Sammy Weaver, Randy's son, both noticed the dog's racket, and they ordered the dog named Stryker to go check it out. The recon team immediately retreated into the woods, about 500 meters from the cabin. Sammy followed the dogs into the woods, while Randy approached the commotion on a separate logging trail. Randy encountered the marshals positioned in the woods, and Roderick shouted, Stop, U.S. Marshal. Less than a minute later, the dog striker emerged from the brush with nothing but speed and bloodlust. Fucking Cujo, yo. <laughs> Just, what a name, though, for a dog, striker. Like, that dog's trained to kill you. And, yeah, that's a Nazi dog. Yeah. <laughs> Was it a German Shepherd? <laughs> no, it was a golden retriever. Oh, that's a sweet dog. Yeah. Roderick fired at the dog and killed it with one shot. Oh, man. 
Rest in peace, striker. Nothing to do with it. Just wanted his kibbles and bits and Roderick's nuts. It is reported that this is when Sammy Weaver shouted, you killed my dog, you son of a bitch, and opened fire on the squad of marshals. I wouldn't. I don't blame him for that. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> point blank shot your re- golden retriever name striker yeah. or not going for your giblets or not like you fucking shot Airbud. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they also shot the dog in the anus. Yeah, yeah, and it exited out his chest. Poor dog. How does that work? Was the dog so much of a threat, or did they just have a real good circle going on? the marshals who knows wait wait so if the dog was going after one person roderick over here did someone else shoot the dog you could have shot your own guy like oh, they shoot the dog in the ass poor puppy it was a nazi dog stop sympathizing sorry he had he had the armband roderick killed the dog oh well how did he get him in the butt was the dog running full force at him anus first <laughs> I couldn't tell you, honestly. I think the dog might have been responding to Randy screaming mm. and made kind of like a, a an adjustment move to go towards Randy. Kevin Harris took cover behind a tree as soon as the opportunity arose. He took one unaimed shot at Marshal Will Deegan, which would later go on to be fatal. Sammy took off on foot uphill where he would be shot in the back and killed by Deputy Marshal Cooper. A ballistics report of the chaos that ensued uncovered a total of 19 rounds that were fired during the fight. Although these details that depict the fight were widely debated, everything from who shot who, who shot first, and how many shots were actually fired, everything else in between... what we described is what's set in stone, but a, a lot of people say otherwise. There's there's a lot of dispute and disagreement. The fact that Sammy was a 14-year-old kid who got shot in the back. Yeah. <laughs> um, that says something. And Oops. I believe it was a, a three-round burst from a nine-millimeter submachine gun. Mm-hmm. On the second day, which was August 22nd, the FBI Hostage Rescue Team, or HRT, sniper and observer teams were briefed and sent to the cabin on foot to handle the situation. Even as sniper teams were being deployed, the ROEs, or the rules of engagement, were still hazy and interpreted by members of the team in different ways. Essentially, the rules of engagement were written as a shoot-on-sight and shoot-to-kill order. That escalated. And go serve a bench warrant and you have a shoot to kill order. It's a little extreme. You'll see the, we'll get into the ROEs later and how they were kind of adjusted for this situation. The majority of FBI HRT snipers and observers, however, recognized the rules of engagement as a change to their deadly force policy. Dale Monroe, an HRT sniper, saw the ROEs as a, quote, green light to shoot armed adult males on site, whereas Edward Wegner, another HRT sniper, thought he could use deadly force if he saw armed adults, but he would still follow the regular deadly force policy for all other individuals. That was confusing as fuck. So these guys are just, they all had different orders and interpretations of those orders. Uh, so a lot of them were holding on to the original 
ROE orders, which is pretty much like only shoot to kill someone if they are trying to shoot to kill you. And in the original ROEs, it said to kill any adult that you came across, pretty much a shoot on site for any adult. They later changed it to adult male because of the daughters and Vicky. So it was pretty much any male, any adult male that they would run into. There was a lot of different variations to the ROEs. And like I said, as we move forward, you will see how they kind of changed and how they were messed up for the situation. I wouldn't even say it's a problem that they changed or that they were messed up necessarily. The rules of engagement as they were, that's what it is. You got to take it at face value. They changed. They were what they were. It, it was the fact that they weren't communicated properly amongst all responding officers, marshals, FBI agents, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. and not everybody was on the same page. In the midst of the unfolding events at the cabin, before the negotiators had a chance to intervene, a pivotal incident took place. Positioned over 200 yards north of the Weaver cabin, FBI sniper Lon Horiuchi took aim and fired a shot that found its mark in Randy Weaver's back as he was attempting to lift the latch on the shed where the lifeless body of his son Sammy laid. His right armpit was pierced by the bullet. Surprisingly, Horiuchi stated during his subsequent testimony that his original objective was Weaver's spine, but a last-second movement by Weaver prevented the deadly outcome. So he just wanted to shoot him right in the back. As Randy Weaver, his 16-year-old daughter Sarah, and Harris retreated towards the cabin, Horiuchi fired a second round. This time, the bullet struck Harris in the chest. Tragically, the same bullet penetrated the cabin door, hitting and fatally wounding Vicki Weaver who stood behind it as Harris entered. Vicky was cradling the Weaver's innocent 10-month-old baby, Elishaba, in her arms at the time. Yikes. Did they know there was an infant and teenage kids? Yes. They knew there was kids, yes. Did they know um, Vicky was behind the door? No. And from surveillance, they would say that they didn't even think that Vicky was on site at the cabin at the time. Which I don't know how they could say that. I mean, keep in mind, we're in day two of this siege or this standoff. So where is she at that point? You know, like they don't even question that. They just think, oh, she's not there. I think as part of the HRT team, there was somebody that had said that they didn't know whether Vicky was in there until she was shot by Horiochi. And they didn't even know that she was dead at the time. It's very weird. It's very like a lot of this is very jumbled up and you're taking story from HRT, from FBI, from the Marshal Service, ATF. You're taking it from a lot of people. You're taking it from Randy Weaver. It's a mess as to how everything actually went down 100%, but this is the base of it. Yeah. Just taking into consideration how botched this whole entire thing was, I wouldn't be surprised to find out that the negotiators were talking to Vicky in communication with her. Meanwhile, snipers on surrounding ridges and outposts had no idea about who exactly was in that cabin. I'm yeah. sure everybody that got taken to this cabin probably all got different debriefings on exactly what was happening. Mm -hmm. That's exactly how it went. 
they all had different ROEs. They all had different information. They all had to, yeah, there was a, it was a clusterfuck and nobody again communicated with each other. What a mess. Just like Waco. Moving forward, former special forces soldier, Vietnam vet, as well as presidential candidate, Bo Greitz was contacted by the FBI. They requested that he record a message for Weaver to convince him to surrender. Bo was up for the task, not only that, but he was confident that he could pull it off and end the standoff peacefully and swiftly. It was on August 30th that Greitz finally convinced Weaver to turn over Kevin Harris, who was critically injured at the time. Greitz also convinced him to let the authorities recover Vicky's body from the cabin. However, Weaver and the rest of the family remained in the cabin. As the siege seemed to be coming to a close, on August 31st, Greitz approached the cabin. And even though Weaver had sworn that he would die before returning himself in, Bo convinced him otherwise and got him to leave the cabin with his daughters. Weaver was immediately apprehended and his daughters were handed off to the relatives. I'm surprised he he got out, but he probably just did that after the point of like, dude, all my kids are going to die. Yeah, my wife is dead. My buddy is about to be dead. His son is dead. Dog got shot in the ass. Like, yeah, you don't want to take your kids out too. you know, yeah. the remaining kids. We mentioned before the issues with the rules of engagement as it pertained to Ruby Ridge. Special rules were created that were contradictory to previous ROE of any other hostage and standoff situations. U.S. Marshal Wayne Duke Smith and FBI HRT Commander Richard Rogers drew up the Ruby Ridge Rules of Engagement on August 21st and 22nd of 1992. So is that like the new rules that and that's what they're calling it, the Ruby Ridge Rules of Engagement? Yeah, because they were specific to Ruby Ridge. I guess in certain situations after doing surveillance and stuff like that, like they have to amend the rules of engagement. Obviously, you'll see like they talk about dogs. Uh, if you're going after somebody that doesn't have dogs, you know, you don't need to have that as part of your rules of engagement. Uh, I think it's catered depending on the situation. But these were overtly deadly. According to the later RRTF report to the DOJ, the Ruby Ridge ROE were as follows, quote, If any adult in the area around the cabin is observed with a weapon after the surrender announcement has been made, deadly force could and should be used to neutralize the individual. If any adult male is observed with a weapon prior to the announcement, deadly force can and should be employed if the shot could be taken without endangering any children. If compromised by any dog, the dog can be taken out. Any subjects other than Randy Weaver, Vicki Weaver, Kevin Harris, presenting threat of death or grievous bodily harm, FBI rules of deadly force apply. Deadly force can be utilized to prevent the death or grievous bodily injury to oneself or that of another. On August 26th, which was four days after the devastating loss of Vicky, the rules of engagement that had been in place since the HRT's arrival were finally lifted. <laughs> Better late than never, right? Hmm. The FBI's standard deadly force policy was implemented instead, serving as the new guiding principle for all law enforcement personnel, 
deployed to the cabin perimeter. The rules regarding deadly force that the FBI followed in 1992 were as follows, just not in Waco. Quote, agents are not to use deadly force against any person except as necessary in self-defense or the defense of another. When they have reason to believe that they or another are in danger of death or grievous bodily harm, whenever feasible, verbal warnings should be given before deadly force is applied. End quote. Yep. So that's the standard ROE. Essentially just saying in a nutshell is, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to fucking shoot you. And then I'm going to shoot you if you don't stop. I mean, they yeah. do that. They, that's it's it's kind of standard operating procedure now. It's like, don't let me shoot you, man. <laughs> like, don't make me. Yeah. Do it. I, well, keep in mind the first set of rules that were put into place specifically for Ruby Ridge were no verbal warnings. Just shoot a person who has a gun on site. On site. That's yeah. why it was like a kill order, pretty much. Which is why you have the sniper who got out there and he just started fucking firing. This is super messy. It's crazy because it's not like they were planning to blow up a church or a school or an airport or something. It was just all these little things that added up that turned into a shoot to kill order, dude. Crazy. Well, there there was the group that they were allegedly, quote unquote, involved with that was trying to plot or allegedly trying to plot something. Yeah, but at that time, law enforcement knew that Randy was not a part of these groups. He, They knew that he was an associate or friend of a friend. Those bastards. Keep in mind, this is all because of a fucking bench warrant for a failure to appear. That's all this is. It's a failure to appear. Literally, they could have just walked up, identified themselves, and said, Hey, we're just dropping off this notice that you should be in court. You've been served. You've been served, essentially. That's, it could have all been very easy. Could have used a Domino's pizza guy to do it, you know? <laughs> That's what they did in Waco. Pizza delivery ATF strike again. The confidential Ruby Ridge Task Force report from 1994 and the Public Senate Subcommittee report on Ruby Ridge from 1995 both denounced the rules of engagement as unlawful. After the siege, the examination of Vicky's death and the circumstances would be scrutinized. The RRTF report by the DOJ would state, quote, that the rules that allowed the second shot to have been made did not satisfy constitutional standards for legal use of deadly force, end quote. It went on to say the shots taken towards the Weavers and Harris were, quote, inexcusable as there was no request to surrender, and the perpetrators were running away for cover. Horiuchi was criticized by the DOJ for taking the second shot that hit Randy in the chest, stating the shot should not have been fired because he did not know who or what was behind the door of the cabin. Rightfully so, Randy Weaver and his daughters filed a wrongful death lawsuit for a whopping $200 million dollars which was in retaliation for the deaths of Randy's wife and son. The suit was settled out of court. The federal government paid Randy $100,000, and each of his daughters received $1 million. Despite these payouts, the government never officially admitted to any wrongdoing or mismanagement when it came to the deaths of Sammy and Vicky. And Stryker. And Stryker, yeah. No money for Stryker's death. You see how the government is more willing to just give you money than to admit that they were wrong? 
Yeah. Here's $2 million. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Here's a tenth of what you're suing us for. <laughs> Shut up. Just the absolute inability to just say, I'm sorry, we fucked up. <laughs> you know, what's interesting about this case, though, is that the actual perpetrators that it happened to, the quote, perpetrators, actually got rewarded. Yeah, family members did die, but they were paid. Nobody's sitting here rotting in prison all day. You know, like the kids are, yeah, they, they lost their mother and their sibling, but they can make a really good compound with a million dollars. The comeback, the second coming of Ruby Rich. Well, you might be asking yourself, what about Kevin Harris, right? What does Kevin Harris, the good buddy, get out of all this? Kevin Harris's attorney actually pressed charges for damages, but federal officials said that the suit was hogwash. Absolutely baloney, hot baloney, as someone who killed a U.S. marshal would never receive a settlement from them. Later in September of 2000, Harris received a chunky payment of $380,000. <laughs> Do they do prison time, any of these people, or are they, they just, just reparations and out? Randy did go to prison. Uh, he was sentenced on the original charges. So literally no charges were brought against him for the standoff. The original charges were for the gun charge and for the bench warrant. So the failure to appear, he was sentenced to 18 months and, uh, I think he was out after 16. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Randy and his daughter Sarah went on to write the book, The Federal Siege at Ruby Ridge, which detailed the incident. The Weaver family later moved to Montana to try to carry out a normal life. In 2012, after Sarah became a born-again Christian, she pronounced her forgiveness of the federal government for slaughtering her mother and brother. And Stryker. Randy Weaver died at the age of 74 in March of 2022. His daughter and survivor of the siege still owns the Ruby Ridge property. As they should. You think it's like an Airbnb now? <laughs> oh, bro. Imagine what a fucking Airbnb that would be. It's like eight grand a night. The outside still looks like all fucked up. <laughs> the inside <laughs> is amazing. Wow. Probably striker, you know, like taxidermied in there. They have a giant striker statue outside of the front door in the little dog pen. There's shitty little plywood cutouts of ATF agents that you can put your head in and take pictures. <laughs> Honey, come here quick. Take a picture. Sarah Weaver, if you're listening to this, Airbnb, your cabin. Yeah, we will come. <laughs> if you build it, we will come. All right, boys. Reddit. This one comes from user party underscore law 8101. It goes, honestly, after reading this whole case, no wonder Ruby Ridge happened. Authorities have harassed and dragged the Weavers through the mud from 1984 to 1992, not wasting any opportunity to make their lives hell. Accused and investigated of terrorism and planning an attack against Reagan without any basis. Party law goes on to say, accused of hoarding weapons and being a white supremacist, actually didn't hoard weapons, was a Christian guy obsessed with the apocalypse. They attempt to clean their names by contacting Reagan. This is later used as proof of their guilt. 
An ATF informant that Weaver became friends with convinces Weaver to do something illegal. Sawed off shotgun in parentheses. This is entrapment and an illegal practice from law enforcement. The ATF tries to leverage the shotgun thing so that Weaver confesses against his friends. Weaver refuses, so the ATF literally accuses him of bank robbery with no reason. This isn't admitted until three years after Ruby Ridge. The government indicts Weaver for making and possessing illegal guns with no reason whatsoever. They give Weaver a court date, but fuck up the dates and then wonder why he doesn't show up. They give a new court date, but six days before that date, they declare he failed to appear. This is a great synopsis. They just casually declare Weaver a fugitive. If the Alphabet Boys are afraid of radicalization, maybe they should stop radicalizing people. Even a Buddhist monk would grab a gun after this bullshit. He makes some good points and stuff that we all went over. There there wasn't much in Reddit uh, as far as Ruby Ridge because it is kind of a cut and dry situation. It's It's more factually based than conspiracy based, much like Waco. There is a little variation to the story, obviously, depending on who's telling it, whether it was Randy, whether it was Sarah, whether it was law enforcement. But for the most part, it was just straightforward facts. So there's not much uh, expounding on it. But, Hushlings, that brings us to our final thoughts. Let's get into this. Let's, let's do it, shall we? Declassified. Dave, what do you got? I'd like to start off by saying I'm not a sympathizer of the white supremacist part of this or the alleged white supremacist friends and cronies that this guy had uh, or even his weird apocalyptic scenario in his head. Uh, but this is a fucked up situation and um, it could have totally been prevented. Uh, Vicky Weaver could still be alive. Son could still be alive. Stryker wouldn't be here anymore. There was the nineties, but you know, they would all still be here and uh, it just, it really shows how easy it is to fuck up a situation that is like dire circumstances. It's life or death. And all of the inconsistencies and miscommunications, like I said, I don't, I don't want to side with the guy because he of his beliefs. But if this was my family and I was just trying to sit in the woods, I'd probably be pretty upset too if you were putting sniper positions outside of my house especially since the entire reason why you're living in the woods is because you do not like the government just it's a unfortunate tragedy for that family no matter what their ideology was i take the side of randy weaver on this It's kind of ironic that a man and his family who have such distrust in the government and the reason that they moved out into the middle of nowhere in the first place was because of that distrust and to get away from this rotting world, they come to their end or at least half of his family pretty much comes to their end by the hand of said government. It's definitely an overreach of the government. Uh, They don't like the people that live off grid. They don't like the survivalists. They don't like any of that stuff that they can't tax, as we've seen many times. The Weavers were not a cult. They were not a dangerous group of people. Were they associated with some? Could be. Do we know how deep that relationship ran? We don't really know. 
are we taking it at face value, the information that came out from law enforcement as to how he was involved with these groups? Yeah, because that's all we have to go on. But Randy would later go on to say that he wasn't involved as as much as the government made it seem like he was. But either way, guy lost his wife, guy lost his, his son, uh, his dog, and the government didn't admit to it, but they gave him a bunch of money, which kind of admits guilt. You know, if he really thought that you didn't do anything wrong, why would there be a payout? Why would there be a settlement? It's a scary situation. And as we talked about, anybody could be on a list. Anybody could be surveilled. Anybody could be being watched right now because of things that you buy or things that you own or pieces of land that you have or ways that you live or things that you believe. Fuck the government. <laughs> that's that's really the message of of this uh, episode, at least for me. Nope, you're on a list. That's yep, it. there it is. There it is. Slick Frog Sanders, what do you got on the ridge? Frog's final thought. I have a sniper and I'm about to blow a woman's head off. Jesus Christ. No, I, I really, I couldn't have said it any better. This was an absolute flop on all of the Alphabet Boys agencies. And in my opinion, like we've said time and time again, despite the white supremacy ties that this guy probably had, he wasn't really doing anything wrong. Even the sawed-off shotgun thing, you you have a right to own guns, as many as you please. Some states, there's frequency laws. You can only buy X amount in so much amount of time. But even wh- whether this dude had an arsenal or not, he was selling a gun to somebody that he thought he was cool with, that was actually an informant, got entrapped time and time again just with the dates, with the gun, with all of it. He was just getting screwed over from from the start, realistically. And it turned out to be tragic. It turned out to be fatal for him and for his family and for his friend. Uh, No amount of money can fix what happened to this family and happened at Ruby Ridge, realistically. And the government learned that the hard way yet again at Waco, would we say, eight months later. But since then, we haven't really seen something like this uh, that poorly handled. They say third time's the charm, but maybe it only takes two. Who knows? Yeah, fucked up situation, man. Now, they definitely have gotten better at raiding. They didn't have a choice. After those two incidents... It, it was either figure out how to do it or stop doing it. Yeah. Or they got better at going radio dark on raids. Yeah. I mean, I, how many raids happen that you probably never know about with people that you don't know? All right, Hushlings, that's going to do it for Ruby Ridge. What'd you think? Was there anything that we missed? Anything that we should have discussed? Did we leave out all the information for the Alphabet Boys so that they can go and fuck up another raid? Let us know. Reach out to us. Hit us up at our email, as always, contact at hushhushsociety.com. Hushlings, be sure to join us for our three-year anniversary episode debriefing 80, where Mike, myself, as well as Declassified Dave will all choose our own topics to present to each other off of the 
ever glorious conspiracy iceberg, which just it's it, it's a fountain of knowledge and mystery and goofiness. It it's just so incredible. I really can't wait for you guys to hear this episode. That will be streaming everywhere on August fourteenth. And for our patrons, we'll be quaking and shaking and sounding the seventh trumpet for Skyquakes. And that'll be only on Patreon on Thursday, August 17th. Hushlings, thanks for joining us for another botched siege of the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. I'm Declassified Dave. And I'm Monsieur Mike. And I'm Sir Frank Sanders. Until our next debriefing, remember... The best kept secrets are hidden in plain sight.